Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition of the Moving to Live podcast. We are, along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, following the ethos, movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. As you heard in the intro for Moving to Live, our knowledge is to interview different professionals and break down these silos of knowledge where the strength coaches talk to the strength coaches, the physical therapists talk to the physical therapists, and on across the fitness or movement spectrum. At the end of the day, most people who are working to get people to move more or to move better. And I've been looking for a person with knowledge in sports psychology to interview for the last few years. I've had a couple of people that hasn't worked out. And a big shout out to Dr. Brian Garrity from Denver, who was generous enough to give me the introduction to today's guest, Dr. Andy Gilham, who has a doctorate in sports psychology. He's also a strength coach. And I know there's two questions I want to get out of the way first, because I think it's, it's important. My first question I always ask everybody, Dr. Gilham, is... What do you do when somebody sees you in the elevator and maybe you've got a t-shirt on or you're talking or you're coming from a presentation at a conference and somebody says, oh, well, what do you do? What's your elevator spiel? Elevator spiel is I help folks get their performance better. I don't much care if it's in sport, out of sport, movement-based or uh, not quite as much movement-based as maybe we'd like. But the reality is that's what I try to do, help folks get their performance better. And I'm sure there's a great story we're going to get into on how you decided that was the career path you wanted to follow. When we were chatting prior to recording, I kind of put my foot in the mouth a little bit and you were very quick to say, hey, make sure that you understand the distinction. And I think if I didn't really understand the distinction, a lot of listeners aren't going to either. You have a doctorate in sports psychology, but as you corrected me, you said you are not able to call yourself a sports psychologist. If we could kind of break that down before we find out more about your story. Fair enough. Yeah, so it's a huge uh, problem, to be honest, for the field of sports psychology. The term psychologist, the G-I-S-T part at the end, that's the legally protected term. And that means you have licensure in a state and the requirements for licensure changes across states. And there's some significant training differences there between someone that cannot use GIST. And so the quickest way to sort of decide that is... A psychologist has the clinical background to deal with all the big, nasty, scary things we humans do to each other. All the the domestic violence and the marriage and counselor or marriage and therapy and family systems of just all the big, scary things in life. They have that training. And then if they so choose, because they are a psychologist, they can slap the word sport in front of it. Even though they have no training in sport, never took a sport class, have no idea the difference between a 100 meter and a 1,000 meter and a 10K and all of that, they can call themselves a sports psychologist. I, however, who my PhD is officially in education with a major in sport and exercise psychology. That's the way the University of Idaho did it. 
I, however, cannot claim psychologist because I'm not licensed. I don't have the clinical background. So I cannot call myself a sports psychologist. This is really important for, if I can be so bold, all of your listeners to understand because when someone Googles sports psychologist, they will not find me. I will not show up. And yet I am the guy that has three degrees in sport, applied certifications in both strength conditioning and sports psych. And I work with coaches and athletes every day on a field, on a rink, on a court somewhere. But I am not and cannot call myself a sports psychologist. So the folks that Google will not find me when they Google sports psychologist. And would it be correct to say that there may be some people out there calling themselves sports psychologists who do have a background where they'd be able to work very well with athletes and there's other ones who are just saying, ooh, this is another marketing term I can use to get more clients? Absolutely true. There are, there are absolutely folks that are excellent and they are truly legally and professionally a sports psychologist. So I'm not trying to paint too broad of a brush on that. It is a term that those of us that know the term understand it, it has more to do with training and background than it does with the actual applied nature. And what's maybe more concerning are the folks that really don't know that term and yet they call themselves that way. And because they have no educational training, because they have no certification, there's no one to hold them accountable. There, there's no penalty for the, the guru, if you will, to call themselves a sports psychologist. And then that causes significant problems for the rest of us in the field. And I'm curious, uh, I know this will be your opinion, but I think as somebody who has the degrees and the certifications, you said it's a valuable opinion for people who are listening, who are movers. If you're a, a parent or a, an athlete who's looking for somebody and you know, okay, I don't have the big, scary mental problems. I know that, you know, I get very nervous when I travel to a race, if we're talking about an endurance athlete and, and I'm outside of my comfort zone and I know I need somebody, um, Somebody said I need a sports psychologist, but I just listened to this podcast and I realized that maybe I don't. What's the term that they look for when they're Googling somebody like you? That's a huge problem. The, the field has not actually settled on a term. That's, that's what it amounts to. And so you can go with mental coach, except for the NCAA hates that because then you're labeled as a coach and we are under different restrictions. We can be labeled as a, sometimes it's a mental conditioning expert okay, I get it. But essentially there is no single term. The um, organizing body would be the Association for Applied Sports. So have certification that I do have certified mental performance consultant, CMPC. And that may be a way there is a consultant finder on their website. That might be a step for folks, but otherwise the Traditional distinction would have been sort of a, a clinical psychologist, as we talked before, and then an applied or an educational applied sports psych. So it's just, it's real, it can be picky and it can be nebulous and it's really tough for folks to understand. So we end up most sort of word of mouth and referral and that's great as long as they get you to the right person. I think it's always about there's an individual here in the Pittsburgh area who talks about A, B, C, D, always be connecting the dots. It's not who you are, but it's who you know. And if in the case of somebody like in our instance, our connection came from Brian Garrity, who both of us respect as a professional. It's like, oh, if Brian says this guy's a good person to interview. I want to interview. And it was literally a cold interview. I mean, I emailed you before I even looked it up because my comment or my thought process was Brian steered me right before probably going to steer me right again. And if not, I'll yell at him. I mean, not just in that way. Yeah. The sort of informal motto I've always had for doing this professional work, particularly when I own my own business, find good people, do good work. And the rest of it will shake out. And at the same time, if I find good people and do good work, my head is calm when I put it on the pillow at night. And that means a lot to me. And I know one of the things that's always the most interesting with moving to live is to be able to find the story of people, how they got to where they are. 
And I know, for example, in your instance, just from looking at your degrees, you clearly were an athlete, at least at some point in your life, you may still consider it. But what was the story growing up? Were you an athlete who kind of realized suddenly I'm not good enough to go any farther or I've got an injury or, okay, I've completed everything, time to get on with the rest of my life? How did that play out where you decided that you're going to continue down that educational journey? A little bit of all of those three pieces. There was a, a fairly significant stress fracture injury from running. I also was not going to compete at any tremendously high level. I, I did in college for a minute until I got injured, as I said. So there, there was a little bit of both of those. There was also, okay, it's time to be an adult. It's time to see what else we can do in the world. Being a student is, I get it. It's fun. And the relaxation moments by all means, but at some point I was ready pretty quickly on in college to move on and be a proper adult, as we say, kind of thing. And always being around sport, growing up with sport, watching sport, doing all those things. I knew I wanted to do something in sport. And I had, my first passion was clearly in the strength conditioning world. What I want to go to school for. And it's, I was one of those guys that when I was doing my bachelor's, there was zero. And I was doing it. I was personally, okay well there's no way even as a 19 20 year old guy I said there's no way I can do this for the next 50 years I I can't handle being a personal trainer for 50 years I'm going to want to move up the chain well I guess I need a master's okay cool so even in the first year of my master's there's zero chance I'm going to do a PhD I need to get out of school I need to get into the real world I need to go make some money and it just didn't didn't work that way for me. What really happened was with my strength conditioning background at Wisconsin lacrosse, I was very fortunate to get to run some speed camps and get to run some sort of college prep stuff for high school guys. And I was coaching baseball and football and track at the time to help pay the bills. And what happened was it became clear to me that the, the athletes that really were going to make it to the next level Physically, they have the gift. The good Lord put the lightning bolt on their arm or their leg or whatever it was. And they, yes, yes, of course, strength conditioning. I love it. But we can make them a little stronger. We can make them a little faster. But we're not changing genetic makeup kind of thing. Where I saw folks really struggle then was on the mental side. Couldn't handle the critiques from coaching. Couldn't handle the motivation to get up at 6 a.m. and get their butt to the workout. Couldn't handle that, that extra rep that's needed to sort of push through some plateau, just couldn't handle that part, which then got me interested in the, the sports psychology piece of it. So it took a pretty hard left turn there from a couple degrees in strength conditioning. So these silos that you mentioned, I took a pretty hard turn away from the singular silo of strength conditioning and went and did a PhD in sports psychology. I'm curious when you were doing that, what were some of your... Uh, colleagues say you said you know i'm not going to do this right now i'm going off i'm going back to school how many of are you effing crazies did you hear oh tremendously so and especially if you know the strength conditioning field and the reputation that wisconsin lacrosse has and the professors that were there i was very fortunate uh, dr mike mcguigan was still there when i was there uh travis triplett Jeff McBride, all, all the, Perkari was still there, Carl Foster, all the folks from Wisconsin Lacrosse's heyday were there when I was there. So I'm, I'm blessed and fortunate to have had that education. But yeah, there were a few moments when I said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this left turn over to Sports Psych that they all looked at me. What are you doing, man? We, we, we set you up. I mean, I, I had a GA there. I got to teach in the department. I got to work with folks. I, I was very fortunate and yeah, it, it rankled some folks. We can say it that way. I know one of the things that my major advisor for my doctoral studies said that's really stuck with me is he said, you know, I don't feel like I'm going to work every day. I feel like I'm going to play. And I think that sometimes when people invest a lot of time in a student and the student doesn't turn out exactly the way they expect, there's a little frustration maybe, and maybe at some level, even if you don't realize it or not, a little bit of embarrassment because they think it reflects badly on them. Whereas really, I think it reflects positively because they've given you the knowledge and the ability to think and realize, hey, I can take this stuff 
and I can apply it in a different way. Because if you're going to be successful, you either have to do something better than other people or put your own spin on it and be a little bit different. And I can't help but think if you're working with athletes and you've got that background in sport and you've got that background in understanding the strength and conditioning, that that's almost as valuable as some of the sports psychology things because you realize what goes into it as opposed to if a football player comes to somebody with no sports experience and says, you know, we train four hours a day and somebody with no sports experience may say, no, you can't. That's crazy. Absolutely. And I mean, specifically to that, Travis Triplett there rose up through the ranks and published so many things. She's absolutely a paragon there in strength conditioning. And while she and I's relationship did drop off there for a bit, as I did the sports psych, she was ecstatic and very supportive when I sort of came back to strength conditioning, right? And I've always maintained my NSCA certification and I speak at NSCA conferences nationally, regionally, locally. So I, I do come back and I still have that connection. And it, it is very unique. As you say, you asked earlier about an elevator pitch. Well, not an elevator pitch, a more sitting across the table from somebody pitch. It is that, hey, look, I understand the physical side of sport. I understand the mental side of sport. I work with both athletes and coaches and admin. I publish in the academic world, and yet on a daily basis, I'm usually with coaches and athletes. So there is this real interesting silo-busting uh, approach to movement that I think fits in very well with your podcast and the purpose here that I understand that you're going after. So I'm, I'm very happy to be a guest, and thanks for having me on, and I hope I'm fitting the bill. You are. I'm, I'm always uh, interested when people tell their stories. And what you were saying when you were telling your story is you became aware when you were working as a, as a strength and conditioning coach that there was this one aspect, that whether it was the strength aspect or the conditioning aspect or the actual sport coaching aspect, there was one aspect that you were picking up or seeing it was mi missing, the mental aspect. How was it that that arrived? And when that arrived, are you kind of the nirvana is like, oh, this is a problem or this is something that could help athletes? Before that occurred, you know, when you were maybe maybe in, in uh, undergrad or in graduate school, were you even aware that sports psychology and, and mental training was something that was very important? Because I know that there are some some athletes who've been doing it for literally years or decades, and you, it hasn't really become the key thing, I don't think, from what I've seen for maybe 10 years, 15 years tops. Yeah, th there's a lot going on there. We can unpack that little minute story there from you for pretty much the rest of the day here. We really can't. So one thing, and I've told this story before and it's been published actually. So sorry for the repeat there, but so international journal sports science and coaching did a big interview series with me a couple of years ago and even had professionals respond to it. One of which I think was Brian Garrity. Uh, but what the story I told there to directly answer your question was I was coaching high school football and doing my master's degree in strength conditioning. And this, the head coach, forgive the language. He was an absolute asshole. And the story that I told hundred percent true and was published. So I'll repeat it here. He referred to all the athletes as masturbating monkeys. Every one of them all the time in public out loud parents on the sideline, principal of the high school there absolutely did not matter. So you ask about what, what triggered me, what, what made me take the left turn, what encouraged it. Honestly, it was that. I mean, I always knew they were grumpy coaches, right? I always knew they were bad coach. Growing up as an athlete, you see the grumpy coach on the other side, and I certainly played for some, and whatever, that's just sport. But that guy, that phrase triggered something in me that just said, there's no way that's right. There's no way that's in the athlete's best interest. dose of humility from me that says I'm not special and if I'm experiencing this then there must be other people like this doing this all over the country all over the the world perhaps or however again I'm a I'm a dumb 22 year old at this point so I don't want to claim too much wisdom but it was just this thing that struck me as that's not okay and I don't like when things are not okay. If I think I can, uh, now there's my arrogance that does come out. I do think I can change something when something's not okay. So I chose 
to pursue the PhD in sports psych then as to help alleviate what I saw as a significant problem in, in sport. We're talking with Dr. Andy Gilham. He is a person who has a doctorate in sports psychology. I just caught myself there. A few minutes ago, you said that you work with administrators, you work with coaches, you work with athletes. How open has administrators been to saying, you know, our atmosphere isn't right, or maybe our atmosphere is great, but we want somebody to come in like you as a consultant and kind of observe. I could see some administrators would pay lip service to it and do absolutely nothing. And I know if anybody reads the newspapers and reads the uh, sports pages about major college sports, you don't see anything about Division Two or Division Three or NAIA, but you see, you hear all the bad news about the major, uh, the major universities in the athletic departments. Is it more you marketing to them or them coming to somebody like you and saying, hey, you know, we want somebody to come in and look at our culture, look at what we can do to improve the atmosphere and basically the way we treat one another? Yeah, so not just at an admin level. And I recognize that's your question. So I don't know if I'm going to do a great job answering that specific part. But the well, reality I was, I was I was going to come up, come and follow that up with the coaches and the athletes. So you can kind of unpackage all that and answer those three points all together. Fair enough, man. That's what we're looking at here. The reality is I typically get brought in, whether it's athlete, coach, or admin level, I typically get brought in in one of two situations. One, it's a dumpster fire and someone with a checkbook knows it's a dumpster fire. That, that's what it amounts to. The coach is just, oh my goodness, I have taken over a terribly losing program. This is a disaster. I need help. Or it's an athlete that just man, I am so worried about this game or I'm so worried about I, I need my imagery skill to be better something. So that, that's one option when it's just a dumpster fire. The second one, and this is probably more common, but the second one is somebody has hit a plateau. And they need, they're, they're, they're a CFL guy that really thinks they need to make it to the NFL. They're a practice squad guy. They're a always fourth place in the conference. They can't get that first round by, or they can't get the home game in the first round, or uh, they're, they're just, they're always stuck at that plateau level. And that's the more common reason I get brought in sort of a, Hey, look, things are going well, fine, good, but I want to be great. Or I want my school to be great. Or I want my squad to be great. Can you help with that? And that is, in my view, that is the ideal situation for me because I cannot, from a mental side, in strength conditioning, same thing. We can't make really bad athletes into excellent world-beating athletes. We cannot do that. We can help the good get to great, but we can't take the really bad, really poor, really inefficient movers, really unsuccessful movers, and turn them into world-class level athletes. That's just not a thing we can do. That kind of brings me to a question that I'm thinking of. And I, and I know as a member of the NSCA, you follow like long-term athletic development and specializing in sports. There are so many parents out there who dump literally thousands and thousands of dollars into their kids for whatever the sport may be. And I think you hit a point, uh, earlier on where you said, you know, you can't take somebody who has bad genetics and make them great. I always term the people who have the genetics in the most positive way as genetic freaks. It's just like they, they hit the freak market in a, in a good way. So do you ever have a situation where a, a parent hires you because, you know, my son or daughter is going to go and they're going to play on the World Cup team in soccer. And because you do have that background in athletics, you can kind of look at this, uh, athlete and go, you know, I know that this is just totally unrealistic because of my knowledge of movement. How do you express that to the parents that, you know, this is an unrealistic expectation because I know that there are many people who they come to the end of their athletic career, whether it's as a high school freshman where all of a sudden everybody else grew up, or maybe they make it to college, or maybe they finish college. And some people are just not prepared for that in essence, a sense of failure because they've been set up all of their life that this is what you're going to do and they can't do it. 
Yeah, it, it's a conversation. It really is. And the, the challenge is whenever we're talking to parents, one of the things that I've found is there's a huge difference between message and messenger. So when coach says, hey, your kid's just not that great, but that coach is also the same coach that is deciding playing time. And there's always politics in that at a youth sport level. And I mean, whose parent volunteered more to concession stand and whose parent did this extra or whatever. So there's always that extra that goes into the, that message may be correct, but it could be sent by the wrong messenger. So that's one of the pieces that when it comes to parents, that's what I try to do. And I certainly try to look at numbers. So I do a fair amount with USA Gymnastics and their member clubs across the country. And I'm very fortunate to get brought in by some great clubs. Uh, one up in Kal- Kalamazoo, Michigan brought me in for a, a substantial period of time. They did some great stuff up there. Branch gymnastics. And one of the pieces when I'm working with parents there is to go through the numbers of, okay, you want team USA. Most people don't even go there. They want a college scholarship. And that's what you were kind of talking about there. So, okay, college scholarship, there's maybe 40 of them available on a given year for gymnastics in the country. Okay. So that means you need to hit this level. You need to hit level 10 or level nine by this age kind of thing. And you can start working back at, okay, well, there's how there used to be 40 scholarships for the incoming freshman class at college. And you go back down and say, okay, well, there's, 2000 level 10 gymnastics. I don't know what the numbers are currently. So my numbers are are a little wonky here, but the point is you work backwards and suddenly you have, you get to the point where usually a parent looks at it and says, Oh, I guess my kid isn't that sort of thing. But then it's really important from my standpoint, you got to have something else to follow up. Well, then what the hell are they spending the money for or what the hell are they doing? Because again, even in gymnastics here, by all means, we can learn some great skills. We, we can learn some great movement skills. We can Now, we don't need to be doing a bunch of twists and layouts and hanging out on beams for the rest of our life. But it doesn't mean we can't be agile and turn that into another sport. As you mentioned, sport specialization. Just because you want to be done with gymnastics at 14, 15, 16 doesn't mean your sport or your movement world should end. Holy smokes. We got a whole 60, 70 more years yet try to get you to move and do stuff. It may not be on uneven bars or pommel horse, but you know, we got other stuff we can do for you. I would also think that for those athletes who maybe can continue in other sports, working with somebody with a specialization in sports psychology can be beneficial, not just for the sports, but just across the board with the academics and dealing with other stresses in life. I mean, especially we're doing this in the middle of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and who knows what's going to go on with schools, et cetera. And you read in the newspapers all the time, the students are under this type of stress. I would think some of the skills they learned to improve their sports performance could carry over to the rest of their life. Yeah. So, and one of the things that I'll talk to a, a youth sport parent about why, why their kids should work. And for me, that's usually high school ish. I don't usually get down into the middle school age. It's not a population I spend a lot of time with, but even at the high school age, parents will say, well, why, why does this matter? Or does, does this stuff that you're going to talk to my son or daughter about transfer? So, well, hang on a minute. Let's see. So your son soccer is having trouble with the coach. You as an adult, do you ever have trouble with your boss in your job? You as an adult, do you ever have trouble with your teammate over here who just clicks the pen incessantly all day long? Okay. You over here, do you have trouble with all all these sorts of things? Right. And then it becomes pretty clear. So what the message that I'll send there to parents is many of the skills that we're going to teach in sports psychology, many of those mental skills most people pretty well figure them out by the time they're 28, 30, 35, however, just going through life because they so much trial and error, right? But the message that I'll send to parents is, what if we can short circuit that? What if we can teach your kid who's 14, 15, 16, what if we can teach your kid those skills when they're 14, 15, 16, and then they, they kind of got it all figured out in that sense, at least better off than many, uh, and 
before they would hit their 30th birthday and they, they can get through college a little easier. They can have those life experiences with a little less bumps in the road. And I'm just thinking, I know sometimes when a, a student, even in college, if they're going to fail a test or even fail a class, they think in some instances, that's the worst experience. I mean, life is over. And sometimes it's a lack of life experience. Or sometimes it sounds like it's a lack of understanding, being able to process it mentally. And it sounds like uh, working with a sports psychologist, or as you said at the beginning, I'm saying this in air quotes on Zoom, a mental coach because performance could be intellectual or quality of life. Yes, absolutely. And simple things like that as going through college, how do you study best? Simple things like that. Yeah, we know the research says studying an environment similar to how you're going to take the test. And if you can get a look at the room beforehand, do so. And all of those pieces, yeah, 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 great. But how do you study best sort of thing, right? Do you, are you a reader? Are you a highlighter? Are you a flashcard maker person? Uh, myself, I was, I could never stay up late. I couldn't stay up late to study. I couldn't do the all night cram. Me too. I could, I could absolutely though, get my butt out of bed at 3 a.m., the morning of the test and study right through and then get into the exam, be ready to rock. I, I could do that, but I couldn't do the night before cram all that stuff. Couldn't do it. I, I'm, I'm a very auditory processor. So I didn't take a lot of notes. I was always engaged sort of thing, but so I knew how I learned and that certainly aided me all the way through PhD studies. I'm reminded of that. I've had some eye problems before that haven't followed the normal path. And I remember my eye surgeon saying, you know, Ben, every patient is an N of one. He said, this is generally what happens, but it isn't always. And then you just hit another thing when you said you were an auditory learner. I remember at the college I previously worked at, I had a biology student who wanted to take uh, my exercise fist class. And I always found that the biology and chemistry students were absolutely phenomenal because they had a much stronger background in physiology from the from the biology and i still remember this kid walked in the first day of class put his head down on the desk and kept his head down for the entire it was a 90 minute class and, and i remember thinking oh this is not going to work well and about the third class we're halfway through the lecture and he raises his head up and asks a question that it was very clear that he had been paying attention had been processing it and this kid hadn't taken a note yet it turns out I got I got to know the kid. I got to be to help him uh, on a committee to get him into dental school. Um, but it turned out that he just had one of those memories. I mean, he would he just had a, had a memory where he could remember everything. And that was my first experience I've ever realized. It's like, holy crap! I couldn't do that, but I could appreciate that. And kind of to bring this to a head where where you can comment on this is I'm thinking uh, as somebody who works in academia, you know, they come out with this is the way that students should study. This is the way that students should learn. I think everybody wants to put everything in systems and they forget that sometimes it takes somebody like you or somebody else to say what works for you to make it okay for a student to say, hey, this is what I need or this is where I work better. Maybe I can't get it because it's not convenient but I can recognize that because this is a weakness, I can work on it and improve it. Yeah, and not just for the students there, but with the athletes I work with. One of the questions, and I don't mean to steal sort of Simon Sinek's thunder here by any means, but the idea of what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And I'll ask that question with coaches all the time. Why are you doing that drill? I work a lot with our power golf program here and those coaches have been great. And what, one of the things that we've really worked on is, okay, you're doing this drill for this purpose. I'm not a golf guy. I don't really care the purpose, but you, the coach need to know the purpose and you need to know that purpose well enough that you can describe that purpose to the athlete. And once you do that, then the athlete will buy in a little bit more. Now we've got science behind us that supports how we build buy-in and how we build relationships and how we do that. So we can use that in the coach-athlete relationship. And then when that athlete later is out on the course in golf, for example, and the athlete is struggling with, for example, they're putting one day, the coach can go back and say, hey, remember that drill we did all January long on putting speed? 
and we talked about this is where we were at in the lab and this is where we're at on the course and this is how we would use this, we then have created a stronger mental link for that athlete because of that purpose, because of that why, because it was clearly communicated to the athlete from the coach what we're doing this drill for. It's not just mindless putting. It's not just mindless hacks in a baseball cage, right? Baseball guys love them at every level. They are the kings of wasting time. They will, they will hit 50 balls from the machine and then it'll take them an hour to clean them up afterwards because they're going to play basketball with those balls as they put them back in the five gallon bucket that every baseball field has piles of five gallon buckets filled with baseballs. It, it really gets to do the, the, why are we doing this? What is the drill? Hey athlete, even at the pro level, Hey athlete, why are you out here? Is it for money? Cause if that's true, okay, then let, let's just, you know, own it. Own that this is about money and I want my kids to be taken care of and I want my wife to be taken care of. I want to buy my mom a house. I want to help my sister with a car. I want to do those things. All right, cool. Then then let's let's own that. That it can be about money. That's a viable reason to do things. But really being clear why we're doing things makes a huge difference. When you're brought in by an administration or something. We all know that there may be coaches who are not abusive like the one I described a few minutes ago, but there are also coaches who are kind of stuck in their ways. What's their attitude or do you ever have a bad attitude where the coach is like, yeah, whatever, you do what you need to do, but I'm not going to change? Or are there experiences where you can actually change? They go, oh, wow, I can improve what I do. Yeah, and a lot of it is I'm, I'm happy to just ask questions. And one of the unique parts about my world and my approach to helping folks with their performance here, I am about as non-threatening as it can be. And specifically from a coach standpoint, I'm never going to coach against you. I'm never going to recruit against you. I have no say in your job status. I, I don't ever get a vote in that. I don't get a vote in your, uh, your pay structure. I, I, I don't get any of that. I'm brought in to help you. You can use this or not. That's up to you. But one of the things, and I, I, again, I've suggested this elsewhere, and I'm not claiming that I'm the only one that's used this approach. But so I ask your listeners to play a game with me. And so you're going to stand in here for your listeners for a minute. So does the mental side of sport play a role in your success in sport? Absolutely, without question. Correct. And everybody I, said, and I'm not saying that because I'm interviewing somebody with a degree in sports psychology. Nope, everybody says that 100%. Everybody says, yes, it does. So then my second of three questions is, okay, give me a percentage of your success that comes from the mental side. Take a wild ass guess in some instances as high as 80%, I would think. Sure. However, I don't care what number you pick. There's never going to be a study that can control and define that. It's never going to be a thing. I will say when I work with uh, college, high, college and high school, there's always some idiot or asshole in the group that says 11.246, right? And they just start making up some crazy numbers. But the point is, I don't care what number you pick. It's greater than zero. Yes. So you said 80% in some cases. Fine. So if you tell me that it's 80%, do you spend 80% of your training time on the mental side? Probably everybody, not. Yeah, yeah, probably everybody not. just sort of <laughs> drops their head, shrugs their shoulders, and is instantly then I have them, right? They, three questions. Does it matter? They say yes. Give me a percentage. They give me a number greater than zero. I say, is that what your training percentage matches? No one has ever answered yes to that question. So right then I have this, okay, well, coach, if you knew this other thing, this drill, this technique, this offensive scheme was what was best for your athletes, and then you didn't do it at all, would that be good coaching? No, it wouldn't. Okay, cool. Then let's have a conversation about some of the stuff that maybe we can get better at and we can help you help your squad. The, the, if that approach doesn't work, then the next trick is to say, hey, coach, do you expect your athletes to get better every day, every week, every year, every season, whatever? 
Yeah, of course. That's what we're out here for. Cool. Tell me what you have done to get better in the last week. What have you as a coach done to get better? And a lot of times I'll get a, a kind of a funny look from them. All right. Didn't understand. Let me try it another way. How many years experience do you have as a coach? Say the guy or gal says 10 years. Okay, cool. Then if you have, if you tell me you've got 10 years of experience, I'm going to follow up and ask, is that one year repeated 10 times? Or is that truly 10 years of experience? Because if it's truly 10 years of experience, then I can ask you again, what did you do nine years ago that you absolutely would not do now? You've learned that is a terrible practice. You've learned that's a terrible drill. You've learned that's a bad thing. And then I can ask the same question from five years ago and from three years ago and from last season. What did you learn last season that absolutely you will never do again? If the coach can't answer all those sort of pieces, then I start to say, well, you're only doing one year. You got, you tell me you've got 10 years job experience. That's one year repeated 10 times. If you can't answer the things that you've changed, maybe we're not doing, maybe your teams aren't getting better because you're not getting better coach. And it it can be a, a tough conversation sometimes. It really can, but that's, it gets back to where I said before, I'm no threat to them. You can listen. We can try to get your performance better. Or you can just keep sticking your head in the sand and plowing forward sort of thing on your own. I know having worked in the athletic training field and the strength and conditioning field that the strength coaches would always like to have more time in the weight room with the athletes. And there's always a push-pull with the sport coaches in many cases because, well, they have to do their sport. And with the athletic trainers, it's either uh, prevention strategies or prevention exercises or in some cases rehab. How's the conversation go with the coaches or, or even the athletes when maybe they didn't say 80% like me, but they're spending no time. They've recognized, okay, let me find out what the sports psychology is all about. How do you talk to them about creating more time? Because we all know that coaches and athletes are very well, you know, if I'm a runner, I've got to get my 50 miles a week in no matter what. And if I'm able to get that lift in, that's great. And if I'm able to do my foam rolling and my rehab exercises, that's great. How do you say, you know, this is another piece that you have to add in, or this is a piece that I have to convince you to take or add in and remove something else or reduce something else? Yeah, it's really a challenge, especially at a college level. We have care hours and we have, requirements there that we can't really just add in. So one of my approaches very much so, and a a clear theme here is that I work more through coaches than I do it in individual athletes. The individual athletes I work with are usually pro professional level. They're usually Olympic level. They're, they are their own entity, right? I mean, they play for a team, they play for a coach, but they are their own profession. For the coaches, though, it becomes a way to sort of disperse the knowledge, disperse the information, right? I, if I'm going to get 10 hours with a program, I'm going to make a more positive impact on the entire program if I spend 10 hours with the coach than I am one hour with 10 athletes on the team or however you want to do that math. I'm going to have a bigger impact on the program. So the program that is paying me to come in is going to have a more efficient, more effective use of their dollars if it is all poured to one individual, that head coach. So that's a huge part of that piece. And when there comes to, as you mentioned, sort of the sport coach and or versus strength coach and or versus athletic trainers, Sometimes it's simply a question of, is the athlete most important? Yes, says the sport coach. Yes, says the strength coach. Yes, says the athletic trainer. Okay, then let's stop kind of upsetting the apple cart here just to be pain in the butt. Let's find a way to remember the athletes are who's most important. And what do you want, strength coach? What do you want, sport coach? What do you want, athletic trainer? And ultimately, all of them, whatever words and verbiage they use, it goes to the point of they want athlete performance to get better. All right, cool. So actually, we all agree. 
Let, let's start from the place that we agree and go from there. I know that if you talk to athletes uh, at whatever level, especially as they advance, let's forget the Olympic and the professionals, but let's talk about the high school and the college athletes. You know, many of them work with a strength coach or performance coach and a sport coach. And I may have uh, picked up on this differently, but it sounds like that the work you do, you're brought in with teams or organizations for a specific period of time and then you go away. Is that just kind of a, do you think, in your opinion, the sports psychology getting in the door? Or do you foresee at some point down the line where just like you have a strength coach or strength coaches at a university, many of them will also say uh, a value somebody with a background in sports psychology is just as important? That's a, that's a big ask. And, and I say that from the standpoint is there's some pretty structural things there that would need to change. So I've even, I work a lot with compliance officers at universities to make sure that I'm not upsetting somebody's care hours, right? And I've had compliance officers tell me, yes, if we, the athletic department, tell, or so a coach, right, representing the athletic department, tells an athlete to go work with you, Andy, that counts as a care hour. If mom and dad do it, if the athlete seeks you out on their own and mom and dad pick up the tab and all of that, then it doesn't count. So we have a, a gray area there. Specifically to NCAA pieces, a lot of NCAA institutions are rightfully so more concerned with the mental health of the athletes than they are of the on-field, on-court performance. I'm not gonna work it's not my training. It's not my background. We're back to this clinical versus applied psychology piece. I'm not the mental health specialist for athletes. I can help make sure they get referred out to someone that is and can help them and do that. But I'm not going to be, I can be a point person. I can be a liaison, but I'm not going to be the one that does that kind of work. So as long as NCA institutions are more focused on the mental health, again, as they rightfully should be, they're not going to employ as many guys and gals like me on the applied side as they are the mental health side. And that's okay, but then we have to recognize, we're back to sort of where we started the interview here today with who do you need? Is it a just performance thing? Is it a self-confidence thing? Is it working with your coach thing? Or is it more of a mental health, clinical health, emotional disturbance piece that you need that aspect? That's a, that's a huge difference. So in terms of how do I get in or do I see sports psychology really being just always part of the team, there's some structural pieces there that make that really daunting and really challenging. So individually, no, I, I really don't. But again, it, it comes from look at what some of the so the military does this with our, our special operations crews. They have it, most of them have as a unit, a sport an applied sports psych person running around. That's a huge, at least last time that I was made aware of the statistics, the US military is the largest employer of sports psychology trained folks in the country. So that's another one. When somebody really doesn't buy in yet, I say, okay, well, look, if this can help keep our soldiers, our men and women alive across the globe, maybe this can help your pitching performance too. Maybe this can help your triathlon performance, whatever the case may be. We're talking with Dr. Andy Gilham. He has a doctorate in sports psychology. I want to finish up just a little bit, uh, focusing a little bit more on your background to kind of educate uh, people who aren't really sure about sports psychology as far as what it is or the background it takes, or maybe students are going, hey, that sounds pretty cool. So you mentioned you started out bachelor's and master's in some sort of exercise science related thing from uh, UW Lacrosse, and you recognize that there was a missing mental picture. At that point in time, when you started researching, were you specifically looking for, I want some sort of a doctoral program that has sports psychology or did you kind of have to muddle around and figure out, oh, there's actually a degree that I can get in sports psychology or with, or with an emphasis in sports psychology? 
I don't know that I did anything really great or on purpose. It was a lot of dumb luck. I, I want to be, I, I was great. I went to the University of Idaho to study with Dr. Damon Burton. He's awesome. He's a rock star. Not a bad word to say about that gentleman. Still in contact with him now as my major professor. He, he was great. And what really struck me with the way that he ran his program was I told him up front, I was more concerned with coaches. I, because again, it's my story that I relayed before. That was the trigger that it was for me. So because of that, I wanted to focus on coaches. And he said, great. And he also said, and I kept the, my, my admittance letter sort of thing, because it's always, it, it struck me paraphrasing here. And he was much more eloquent, but what it ultimately said was, you don't have anywhere near the amount of psychology that I would typically look for in academic training in a PhD student. However, you are 100% on the sports side. You are 100% in the sport world. And that is what the field needs to counter some of the, well, he's a shrink. Oh, he's a, he's a head shrinker. Oh, he's the egghead. He's the academic guy. No, no, I walk like a sport guy. I talk like a sport guy. I act like a sport guy. I just happen to have the psychology background now through my PhD that I can help some folks with their performance. Kind of brings to mind uh, what my doctor said, everybody's an N of one and your major professor was smart enough and insightful enough to recognize, okay, on paper, this guy has no business being here, but wow, this could be really beneficial, not only for him, but for the profession as a whole. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, again, I don't think that I'm the only special one out there doing that work. That's not at all, not even from the program of Idaho. There's some great folks that came out of there that are doing, running their own grad programs now and doing phenomenal work. So it's not about me. It's about the idea of, again, the, the purpose of your podcast here is to connect the different areas, connect that because when we move, when an athlete is out on the field competing, they don't just take the strength conditioning stuff out there with them. They don't just take the rehab exercises from PT and ATC out there with them. They don't just take their self-confidence. It's all happening out there all at the same time, all pushing together. And that's a reality that a lot of folks don't quite understand. So when you asked earlier about working with coaches and what that does because of the time aspect at the coach level, I make no bones about it. I tell them, I'm going to cost you time away from your athletes. You and I are going to need to spend some time together. We're going to need to have some meals. We're going to need to have those conversations. But it will then make your practices when you're with your athletes more efficient, more effective, and ultimately lead to a higher performance. So, yes, coach, I want you to put in some capital investment of your time and your mental energies with me that will help you be more effective in effectively the arena that the coaches compete in daily practices, season planning, working for, for more victories, for faster times, for whatever the sport may be. We had the conversation at the beginning of the podcast of what made a sports psychologist GIST and you made the very, uh, strong clarification and explanation of why that's not what you were. You finished your degree and you were mentioned at the beginning, you have uh, a certification in mental performance. Somebody who's listening to this, what are the requirements to get that? So they're like, boy, you know, I took some psychology classes. I like strength coaching, but I'm not a strength coach or I like athletic training, but I recognize there's something more. What level of education does somebody have to have to maybe not do it at the same level as you because you've been doing it a while? Um, and you have that doctoral degree, which kind of adds the academic aspect, but they want to work with athletes or they want to work with coaches or they want to work administrators. What do they need uh, or how do they get the training that they need? Yeah, there, there are certain requirements there. And again, I would, that certification is through the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. So their website will have this better detail than mine. I've had the certification for 10 years now. So I got I'm a little fuzzy on some of the pieces there, but there, I believe there's still a master's level and then a PhD level sort of uh, training. And then there's also certain courses that you have to take, right, that fulfill certain check boxes on the form. And then there's also an applied piece where you actually have to go out and work with folks and you actually have to 
put in the time and put in the effort and do that. And I think, again, I could be wrong on this, but that's a distinction in the quantity of hours. So the master's level academic degree requires a larger quantity of hours for the applied portion than the PhD does. And there's certain requirements there. So many of the, so many of the hours needs to be supervised by a mentor, an approved mentor, which has to be someone who's certified and who has kept up the mentorship side of their recertification process. So again, we're, we're, we're getting into the details here on these pieces. Those documents are all publicly available. They're not behind a paywall or anything like that. So folks can go to their website and look up the information. I, I wanna be careful about not speaking too far out of something that I just haven't looked at in a while. That I think that gives people a good background. And I think it also supports what you were saying at the beginning, as far as a sports psychologist versus somebody who works in sports psychology. One final question I'd like to ask you, and this kind of puts you on the, on the spot so I can delete it out if you say, yeah, I don't want to answer that. Um, I know you see this in the fitness and the movement world about, you know, we need to get state licensure. So we have the, the, the same rights and privileges as say physical therapists and athletic trainers. Based on your work experience and what you've seen, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, like, you know, we don't have state licensure, et cetera, uh, national cert, or you do have national certification, but not state licensure. Do you, A, foresee the day where maybe there would be state licensure at various states? And I know it's, there's 50 states to consider. And do you personally think that would be a good thing or maybe not so good a thing? I'm going to attempt to eloquently sidestep that question. Not because I don't want to answer, but more so because with my behavioral training, it matters more about people than it does any sort of degree, any sort of certification, any sort of anything. So if it sounds like I'm speaking with a forked tongue there, give me a minute, please. Because what it amounts to is, that, again, part of the podcast here of working together, one of the really unique things about the, the shop that I work for here, Sanford Power, Sanford Health, is that under the same roof, we have strength conditioning coaches, we have athletic trainers, we have physical therapists, we have team docs, we have the physicians, the surgeons, we have me doing the sports psych. We've got an excellent crew of biomechanics folks, performance biomechanics, movement analysis. We do some really awesome 3D motion capture stuff with, with golf, with overhand throwing mechanics, with kicking mechanics. I don't know all of these people's degrees and what's required. I, I don't know. I do know that when I have a, an athlete that I'm working with that has a, maybe a little movement imbalance or that I see something, I can go to my colleagues and say, let's, let's figure this out. So again, I recognize that your question was about certifications and licensures and, and those big fancy, let's go get them from an academic prep sort of thing. And so I, I'm attempting to respectfully sidestep that and say, regardless of all of that, when it comes down to the individual athlete, which is what we're supposed to be working with, that's the person that we're actually supposed to be doing and helping. It takes other people, the PT, the ATC, the SNC, the skill sport coach, the sports psych, the biomech to actually work together and help that athlete. So it's not enough to just simply say, I've got the credential. Now all come and worship at my altar. It's much more about let's us, the group, let's us, the colleagues, let's us, the movement professionals help with that. And it really does come down to people trying to help people. I don't think that's a sidestepping of the question. Uh, it's interesting that you said that. It podcast has not aired yet. I interviewed uh, Dr. Michael Snyder, who is a chiropractor, uh, who teaches in the University of Pittsburgh Physical Therapy School. And we had a, a conversation, you know, it's like, what's it like to be a chiropractor teaching in a physical therapy school? And his answer, although slightly different from you, was the same thing. It's like, look, at the end of the day, we're trying to do the same thing. And I know I've talked to some chiropractors and, and some physiotherapists in Canada, and they said, look, you know, the training is very, very similar. At the end of the day, the goal is to help make the patient better. So I think your answer is not really a sidestepping. It's just saying, look, it's not all of a sudden I have a licensure, so I'm magical and I can make thousands and thousands of dollars and everybody can say, oh, wow, I like the bow down at me. 
That's just not the way it is. And and so again, I'm really fortunate with the colleagues I work for. My director, Lisa McFadden, is absolutely awesome in trying to push us to work together. She is absolutely awesome. That is the point for whoever walks in the door. Y'all work together. The point is the athlete. The point is the athlete's performance. The point is the team's performance. That's what we're here for. And we all get in, you talked about our academic silos. We all get in our own personal silos too of, no, no, this is my job and I'm going to put up my defensive walls and no, no, you can't talk to me about that. Well, that, that's just not effective for, again, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be helping the athlete move better, live better, perform at a higher level. I think that's a great point to to finish up on talking with Dr. Andy Gilham. We'll have extensive show notes. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to Moving to Live. And I think you're giving the listeners a much better background than I was even expecting of what it takes to be effective in the field of sports psychology. I appreciate the time. If there's anything I can ever do for anybody, let me know. If there's anything I can do for you again, Ben, let me know. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.